Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The guest at the Oxford Hotel in Denver wasn't merely sick. He was writhing in agony, covered in his own vomit and feces, clearly nearing death's door. Yet the woman and child staying with him didn't seem concerned. Hotel staff members definitely were, on the other hand. In fact, they got so concerned that, after a few days, they refused to even enter the room. Their bosses finally intervened and told the woman sternly, take that man to a hospital now. Instead, Anna Marie Hahn took George Obendorfer, a 67-year-old retired cobbler she had met in Cincinnati, to another hotel in Colorado Springs called The Midland. There, staff members reportedly saw her bring the frail, obviously sick man watermelon in copious amounts. It looked like she seasoned it with granules of salt. That didn't set off any alarms. Lots of people like salt on their watermelon. But if they had known that at the same time Anna Hahn was making regular trips to the local bank to see if money from Obendorfer's Cincinnati account had arrived in Colorado yet, maybe they would have. Within days, Obendorfer died a horrific death, to which Hahn had little reaction. She explained to the staff, and eventually to investigating police officers, that she barely knew the man. They had met by chance en route to Colorado, meeting on the train. Han returned home to Cincinnati with her 12-year-old son, Oscar, and life seemed to move on. But Han had made a silly mistake during her deadly trip out west. While at one of the hotels, she had wandered into an off-limits room, as in one occupied by the hotel owner and wife, and spotted two diamond rings lying out in the open. She pocketed them, and then pawned them on the return trip home for $7.50, far below the retail value in the high hundreds, which was a lot of money in 1937. It so happened that the wife of one of the hotel owners had spotted Han leaving the room, then later noticed the missing rings and put two and two together. When Cincinnati police came knocking, they were only interested in picking up Anna Han for grand larceny. But then everything unraveled. It turned out that Obendorfer wasn't the only elderly man who had died in Hans' care. Cincinnati investigators found she had been friendly with three other men who had died agonizing deaths after dining with a 31-year-old woman. Within months of that ill-fated trip to Colorado, newspapers nationwide were running front-page stories on what at the time seemed inconceivable a pretty married mother with a penchant for murder. And Ohio specifically faced a historic question. Were the crimes horrific enough for the state to electrocute its first woman?
To help tell this story, I turned to a colleague of mine at the Cincinnati Enquirer who's been a history geek for a lot longer than I've been, Jeff Cease, spelled like Dr. Seuss but with the E and U transposed, has written a few books on regional history, and he also edits and writes for the Enquirer. I have a history column once a week in the Sunday paper and online, and I have also been the librarian and kind of keep the archives um, in whatever evolving state <laughs> that is. So that's digital files and photos and things like that. The Enquirer is the last daily newspaper standing in a town that once had four vibrant papers. Though the Great Depression had just claimed one earlier in the 1930s, several years before Hans' case broke. At this time, the commercial had just closed, so we had the Enquirer, the Post, and the Time Star. Of the three newspapers, the Enquirer covered this case in the most detail, its reporters sometimes filing 10,000 words a day from the trial. That's about two Crimes of the Centuries episodes written in a single day. It's a lot. Hans' case was, without question, one of the biggest stories to ever hit the Queen City. So big, in fact, that the Enquirer offices to this day are decorated with photographs of newspaper staffers surrounded by bundles of newsprint bearing headlines from the tale. Before we get to those, though, let's talk about Anna Marie who came into this world with the surname Filser. She had been born in 1906 in Germany and was reportedly the favored child of her mother Katie, which is saying a lot because Anna was the youngest of 12, so there was some serious competition for the title. Anna's father, George Filser, was a furniture maker, and the family lived quite comfortably in a bucolic Bavarian town on the edge of the Alps. Now, this being the early 20th century, not all of George and Katie's 12 children survived into adulthood. By the time Anna was born, five of her older siblings had died, according to a book by author Tori Telfer. Anna's early years aren't well documented, and what we know of her reasoning for leaving Germany to come to America is per her own accounting, which makes the narrative a bit suspect for reasons that will become clearer as we go. But for now, Anna's word is all we've got, and it was this. So she had been in Germany, had a relationship, as she said, with a physician from Vienna. And she wanted to get married, and she found out she was pregnant. And it turns out that he was already married and broke that off. By Anna's description, the doctor was well-respected and out to cure cancer. His name was either Dr. Max Machecki or something similar, depending on which newspaper of the day you believe. But funny thing about this, historians have since backpedaled to try to find if this man exists, and they can't match up Anna's description with any known physician of a similar name. In short, we don't know if he really existed. But what definitely existed was Anna's pregnancy. So she had the child, which, you know, this is the 20s. <laughs> so a child out of wedlock was a big scandalous thing. After Anna gave birth to her boy, Oscar, she left him with her family as she set across the world for America aboard a ship with $25 in her pocket, or about $430 in today's money. Her plan, which she did make good on, was to get settled before coming back for her son. It was pure happenstance that landed her in Cincinnati. Anna was distantly related to a couple who lived there, and upon receiving correspondence from her, they gave her a few hundred dollars in seed money. Soon, Anna, who spoke English quite well, had a job and was earning her own keep. 
Her relatives were actually a bit peeved. She never paid them back for their seed money. But later on, they decided they had probably chosen wisely when they opted not to say anything. By the time Anna retrieved her son from Germany, she was engaged to a man named Philip Hahn, whom she told that she had been widowed by her Viennese doctor husband. They wanted to get married, but she said only if she could bring her son. So she went back, I guess, over and brought him back, and they started having a family. Anna returned to the U.S. with five-year-old Oscar on November 3rd, 1930, according to ship records. At that point, Anna was 24 years old and described in the immigration documents as five foot three, blonde, with blue eyes and fair skin. Philip adopted Oscar as his own, and the boy quickly began calling him daddy. It seemed a loving, fairly traditional family to outsiders. The Great Depression, though, did pose some problems. Anna had big dreams, bigger than was initially feasible for Philip, by trade a telegrapher, someone who would tap out and send messages via a telegraph machine. The couple tried their hand at some businesses, like opening a store. But this is the Depression, so all of their plans for building businesses and things easily fell through. A bit of arson and insurance fraud cushioned the blow somewhat, but the economy was in rough enough shape that Anna apparently decided she needed to pursue even more atypical routes to get the financial stability she desperately wanted. So beginning around 1933... She started meeting up with older men that weren't certainly wealthy. So she's in her 30s, they're in their late 60s and early 70s. Now from the outside, these relationships looked not only fine, but even sweet. The men were invariably German speakers who loved to talk to the younger Anna about the things they missed overseas. They also loved to indulge in her cooking. She would make traditional German dishes, plate-sized Bavarian pancakes were a favorite, and swap stories with the older men about the homes they'd left behind. How Anna's husband Philip took to these friendships is a matter of debate. And they seem to be some distance between them because in all these tales of her meeting up with these men and being caregivers and stuff, the husband seems to not be in the picture. So I'm not entirely sure how close they really ended up being. In her book, Telfer wrote that Philip, in fact, knew about the friendships and wasn't keen on them. But the couple's home life was stable and vanilla enough that it seems he probably didn't want to make a big fuss out of it. Besides, Anna was pretty headstrong, and when questioned about the relationships, she got defensive. I'm trying to help old people. How could that possibly be a bad thing? Anna Hahn got in the habit of befriending elderly men in Cincinnati, and her kindness seemingly began paying off straight away. To the non-skeptical out there, it surely seemed like quick karma. One of Anna's earliest friends was Ernest Kohler, a 62-year-old man who owned a house inside of which Philip and Anna rented two rooms. Another room was reportedly rented by a doctor who wasn't keen on locking his office. That gave Anna an opening to sneak in and forge occasional prescriptions for narcotics. Kohler died May 6, 1933, and Anna explained to authorities that he had been battling esophageal cancer. The local coroner got involved after receiving a few pesky calls suggesting that Kohler might have in fact been poisoned, 
but the coroner checked Kohler's esophagus and found no evidence of poisoning. Kohler's body was sent to the crematorium. Anna reaped a windfall. Kohler had left his new friend his house, valued at $12,000, or more than a quarter million in today's money, plus a car, more than $1,000 in savings, and fancy furniture. Even Philip couldn't have balked too much at all that. Now, I'll do my best with the rest of the timeline, but as Jeff Cease explained... That was the difficulty of this case, is that there were these multiple people, and the timelines crossed over. So she would meet one person, and then meet another, and then one guy would die, and then the next. And which one did she borrow money from, and which one did she steal money from, and which one did she, you know? In short, it's tough to keep things straight, but we'll do our best. Not long after Kohler died, Anna met another man, this one named George Heiss. He was a 63-year-old coal dealer. It seemed his interest in Anna wasn't merely in swapping homeland tales, though. He saw this 31-year-old woman as a potential mate, a notion that was not disabused when she allegedly told him that she and her husband were divorcing. That would have been news to Philip, by the way, who never divorced Anna, not even when she was arrested and charged with murder. Anyway, Heist began dropping hints that he might want to get married. That intention might have clouded his judgment when Anna began dropping hints that she needed a little money here and there. It wasn't that she was poor, you see. In fact, the bank ledger she showed Heist suggested she had access to some $15,000. But you know, it wasn't always easy to get the bank to release money to a wife in those days. Sometimes Heist loaned her his personal money, but she tapped him pretty dry, so he began taking loans from his business called Consolidated Coal Company. Once that tab reached the $2,000 mark, a company accountant noticed and asked Heist what was up. He admitted he'd been skimming for his girlfriend, but promised she was good for it. When the accountant reached out to Anna for payback, but instead got pushback, well, Heist started to wise up. He realized that after he'd eaten some of Anna's recent meals, he'd gotten sick. She liked to serve him spinach with granules of salt on top. But was that really salt? Seemingly, the fog was lifted from the lovesick man's brain, and he finally said, Yo, pay me back my money, and also, I never want to see you again. Heiss apparently spooked Anna with his change of heart. She was determined to pay him back and be done with him, but to do that, she had to get her hands on a lot more money than she readily had, especially because she'd gotten in the habit of losing her spare cash at the local racetrack. So she set up a kind of Ponzi scheme of sorts, meeting new men from whom she would borrow money, which she'd use to pay back heist, and then those new men would start to ask for their loans back, and so she would bum money off yet another guy. It was in this frenzy of men meeting that in late 1936, she encountered Albert Palmer, a 72-year-old man who, like Anna, loved to bet on horses. Palmer must have marveled at his good fortune. Here was a lovely 30-something-year-old woman paying him attention, cooking for him, writing him little love notes that, according to Telfer's book, called him, quote, my dear sweet daddy, end quote and promised him all her love and a lot of kisses. Eventually, though, Albert Palmer grew suspicious. And he basically was asking for the money back, which he couldn't pay back, or 
that she become his girlfriend. As in, exclusively. Which was going to be tough, considering Anna was both married and juggling several other men at once in a fairly tight-knit community in Cincinnati. And so she was trying to then find other ways to get the money and ended up, I think, finding another guy, which was the Jacob Wagner, and got money from him to try to pay back the first one. Conveniently, though, Palmer died before Anna paid him back in full. On March 26, 1937, he succumbed to what authorities believed was a heart attack. Now, this next fellow, Jacob Wagner, a gardener, is where Anna began getting especially sloppy. According to a tenant in Wagner's building on Ray Street, Anna one day approached and asked the tenant if any old men lived in the building. The woman said, why, yes, there's a German immigrant here by the name of Jacob Wagner, which suspiciously seemed to jog Anna's memory. Oh, yes, Anna said, Wagner's my uncle. Then Anna slipped a note under Wagner's door to introduce herself, and the two began meeting. It doesn't seem Wagner ever believed this young woman was a blood relative, because soon after they met, he began boasting to friends that he had a new girl who loved to keep him company and serve him German food. But again, Cincinnati is a small-town big city now, and it was even smaller back in the 1930s. The city's broken down into dozens of independent neighborhoods, and those areas were known for being little ethnic enclaves of sorts. The German-born immigrants would have overlapped enough to share stories that piqued Wagner's interest. When he once discovered his bank book was missing from his apartment, he accused Anna of taking it. Offended, Anna offered to help him search his apartment, and lo and behold, she found it for him. Then she made him a dinner that landed him in the hospital, as Telfer wrote, retching with pain. After Wagner died an agonizing death, Anna visited a probate court to cry to a judge and suggest maybe Wagner's apartment should be searched for any important documents. She was shocked, shocked, I tell you, when on Wagner's mantle, they found a handwritten will leaving everything to his quote-unquote relative, Anna Hahn. The will read, I don't want any flowers and I don't want to be laid out. While Anna had largely targeted men without much by way of friends or family, there were some folks who cared about Wagner and were immediately suspicious about his sudden death. In an article printed August 14, 1937, in the now-defunct Cincinnati Post, a restaurateur named Fritz Grafmeier demanded an investigation, saying, quote, I had known Mr. Wagner for a long time. He had never been sick before. I thought there was something funny when he went so quick. People in the neighborhood were talking about a woman who claimed to be his niece visiting him. She told me she was not his niece, end quote. Grafmeyer went to the police three times and then to the prosecutor's office. Lieutenant George Shaddle, head of the homicide squad, assigned two men to the case who did nothing at first because, as Shaddle told the Post, quote, we didn't have enough information end quote, which is a great reason not to investigate something, don't you think? But the prosecutor's office took things more seriously and had Wagner's body exhumed for posthumous poison testing, the results of which would take a while. Meanwhile, the death count around Anna Hahn at this point was at least three. Ernest Kohler, the landlord, Albert Palmer, the gardener, 
and Jacob Wagner, the probably not relative. There also had been a widow from Norwood that Tefla wrote was killed by Anna for $80 and a rabbit for a coat, a tidbit confirmed in that same Post article, though it provided no name for the alleged victim. It was after the exhumation of Wagner's body that Anna befriended the man mentioned at the top of this episode, George Obendorfer, the cobbler. His death while he and Anna traveled out west, supposedly to contemplate a move there together, was suspicious, but Cincinnati police first got involved in that case because of the theft of the diamond rings from one of the hotels. After receiving information from Colorado investigators about that larceny, Lieutenant Shuttle happened to spot Anna at detective headquarters and recognized the larceny suspect as the same woman involved in the Wagner case. And wouldn't you know it, she had been tied to yet another death, too. This time, that of 67-year-old George Gesselman, a German-speaking Hungarian immigrant who bragged to his friends a few weeks after Wagner's death that he had found himself a, quote, young blonde German schoolteacher to marry, end quote. Gesselman was an easy mark. The Inquirer described him as a pathetic, lonely old man who lived in almost abject poverty. Ouch. When Anna asked him for money, he pulled out just $100, and that was the biggest withdrawal he had ever made, according to officials with this bank. Telfer wrote, quote, One night, an ecstatic Gesselman told two of his neighbors that he was getting married the next day. By morning, the bridegroom's body was stiffening on his bed. There was a half-eaten meal on the stove, laced with 18 grains of arsenic. This was far more than was necessary to kill a man, end quote. The walls were closing in on Anna Hahn. At first, Philip Hahn said he stood by his 31-year-old wife, the mother to his 12-year-old adopted son, Oscar. He couldn't see how she could possibly be responsible for so much destruction. They maybe weren't the closest couple in the world, but these allegations just seemed outlandish. A photo of the family of three appeared in newspapers nationwide. In it, Philip is on the left, leaning in to talk to his wife, who's sitting at a defense table. Oscar is between the amicable-looking couple, his gaze over his shoulder directed at his daddy. Most newspapers made note of Anna's appearance, describing her blonde hair in demure, almost nun-like dress, her only jewelry, a golden cross around her neck. But soon after that photo appeared, police found a bottle of poison in the rafters of the Hans' basement. After that revelation, Philip Hans' name faded from the newspapers, as well as the lives of his wife and adopted son. The trial that began in October 1937 was as sensational as they come. While prosecutors only charged Anna with Wagner's death initially, they successfully lobbied to have the similar deaths of several of the other men introduced as evidence as well. This was a headline writer's dream. Han was dubbed the Blonde Borgia and Cincinnati's Angel of Death. As was, and still is, often the case with these types of crimes, women were particularly drawn to the courthouse to watch the proceedings. In fact, the jury was made up of 11 women and one man. I think their idea was, 
women couldn't possibly send another woman to the chair. And so I think that's what they were, the lawyers were banking on. And they probably used all of the, the voidier and the deliberations they could do to get that. Because that's what was at stake here. In a state that had never sentenced a woman to death by electrocution, Anna Hahn was facing the electric chair, which in Ohio had the macabre nickname Old Sparky. Prosecutors paraded 113 witnesses to build up its case in a trial that lasted nearly a month. Many of those witnesses were chemists and physicians testifying about the state of the victims in the throes of death and the poison found in their bodies after posthumous testing. Some of the witnesses were handwriting experts who found striking similarities between some of the men's last wills and testaments and Anna's handwriting. To that, she did eventually testify that she had forged a document or two, though she insisted it was because the men had told her their wishes before they fell too ill to write them out themselves. The first person to testify on Anna's behalf was her son, Oscar. He took the stand with a confidence and stoicism that reporters of the day couldn't help but comment on. And he insisted that some of the actions prosecutors had ascribed to his mother had actually been his. For example, he said it was he, not his mother, who had fed Obendorfer watermelon on that horrible trip to Colorado. That implied that the watermelon surely couldn't have been garnished with arsenic because Oscar seemed too sweet a lad to do something like that. Oscar also said that he had fetched the dying man some coffee, and no, his mother didn't add arsenic to that either. Oscar said that he himself had asked the server for three spoonfuls of sugar, which the server mixed in. In short, Oscar said that his mother never had access to Obendorfer's food or drink. Also, Oscar said, that bit of poison found in the basement rafters was his, not his mother's. It was part of a chemistry set that Oscar and a friend used to make inks and such. Oscar did tell one jarring story that could not have helped his mother's case. He described being on the train with Obendorfer, who was steadily falling quite ill. Oscar said that he began cutting paper and drawing on it to entertain himself. One of the drawings depicted skulls. And when Obendorfer, already weak, saw it, he began making a scene, screaming, Witches! Witches! He no doubt was hoping someone would help him. But according to Oscar, the other passengers simply laughed. For the most part, Oscar held up well on the stand. So did his mother, who testified after him. Her two days of testimony were split by a day off, an election day during which jurors were escorted to cast their ballots, And while Anna seemed to have an answer ready for just about everything thrown at her, a lot of it didn't add up. The way she told the story, she was just a straight-up saint who had reached out to be helpful to these old people because she just loved the elderly and wanted to do whatever she could to make them comfortable. They adored her so much in return that they amended their wills to include her, except when she forged those amendments. But she only did that because she was certain it was what they had wanted. Asked by the lead prosecutor, a boisterous orator named Dudley Miller Outcult, whether she had noticed that all of these men seemed to suffer similar symptoms before their deaths, she said, why no, she hadn't. 
Outcalled said in his opening statement that Anna had killed so many men that there is not another person like her on the face of the earth. A bit hyperbolic, but this really was a monumental case at the time. Anna's lawyers were no match for the fiery outcult, though. One, a guy named Joseph Houdin, had early on promised to bring 53 witnesses to testify to Anna's innocence. In reality, though, he only brought three. A Chicago chemist whose testimony swayed no one, plus Anna and her son. While Houdin didn't impress anybody, Anna did, but not in a good way. She was described as an ice queen, always impeccably dressed, with her hair nicely styled by her fellow prisoners. She flatly told one reporter, quote, They'll never get a confession out of me because I can't confess to something I never did. But I suppose the death of anyone past 60 anywhere in the country now will be laid to me, end quote. Now, she might have had a bit of a point there. In the old newspapers, there are multiple other deaths casually attributed to Anna that didn't fit her usual M.O. and might well have not been her doing at all. I'm not sure about that widow with a rabbit fur coat, for example. But of the five men whose deaths were detailed in court, four had been exhumed. Remember, the landlord Kohler was cremated, so he couldn't be further tested. Every one of the four that were had arsenic in their systems. But that wasn't the most damning testimony. That came courtesy of the quote-unquote living witness, George Heiss, the 63-year-old coal man who had lent Anna money from his business. The Inquirer reported that Heiss was, quote, wheeled into the courtroom to point a quavering finger at the stony-faced blonde and say, you did this to me, end quote. That was followed up by prosecutors presenting an expert to testify that one of Anna's favorite purses had flakes of arsenic stuck to its lining. It was the same purse she had brought to Colorado. Outcult's closing argument was powerful. Pointing to each of the courtroom's four corners, he said, quote, In this courtroom are four dead men. In this corner is Albert J. Palmer. Here is Jacob Wagner. Here is George Gesselman. In this corner is George Obendorfer. As they point their bony fingers at this woman, they say, You did this to me. You caused me to die a death of agony. End quote. The jury had three options. They had guilty without mercy, guilty with mercy, or not guilty. And everyone was sure it was going to be guilty. It was the mercy portion that seemed in question. Without mercy meant an automatic death penalty sentence. With mercy meant Anna would spend the rest of her life in prison. The jury went without mercy. In a later writing, which I'll explain in just a minute, Anna said she couldn't believe that a jury composed of 11 women would sentence her to death. She couldn't believe that these women could have done that to her. But it was interesting that the one man on the jury was the foreman, and he was the one that the Inquirer reporter said that as the jury walked in, he looked at each of their faces as they walked, and the one who had tears was the, the one man. The judge, also male, was similarly upset. Later, he wrote, as quoted by Cease, It was the hardest job I ever had to do. Even on the day of the sentencing, Mrs. Hahn stood before me and maintained her innocence. I said what I had to say and not a word more. My throat was choking. 
When I pronounced sentence and asked that God have mercy on your soul, I climbed off the bench and locked myself in my chambers. Then I cried like a two-year-old child. Anna apparently felt confident that he would use his discretion to override the jury's decision and sentence her to life in prison instead. The appeals began straight away, but none was successful. Some people started pressuring her to confess. Maybe if she would just confess, that would sway the judge or someone else in power to show her some mercy. She refused. Finally, when it became clear there would be no mercy shown to her, Anna did confess. She put it in writing, slipped it to her attorney, and, after her death, there was a bidding war amongst the newspapers and reportedly even a film company that wanted to make a movie about her crimes. The Enquirer apparently offered the winning bid, allowing the newspaper to print the confession. The money raised, supposedly, went toward Oscar's care. Whether that actually happened is unclear, though, because Oscar's fate is unknown. He never reunited with Philip Hahn, the man to whom he referred as daddy while testifying about his mother. It was rumored that Oscar was sent to arm-length relatives who changed his name and allowed him to live out the rest of his days in obscurity. What we do know is that before Oscar's removal, he spent time with his mother in the hours before she was set to be executed. Anna did genuinely seem to worry about him. Her longtime poise gave way to hysterics as she screamed at her guards, What of Oscar? You have to stop this. Someone has to take care of Oscar. When it was time to walk Anna to the electric chair, she grabbed onto Oscar and kissed his face over and over again. After several minutes of this, the guards pried the boy away and walked his sobbing figure down the hall. Anna had to be nearly carried into the death chambers. She pleaded with the witnesses present to do something to spare her. She collapsed at the sight of old Sparky, which had never before held a woman. Please don't, she cried. Think of my boy. Won't someone, won't anyone come and do something for me? After electrodes were attached to shaved spots on her head and one of her calves, a guard placed a black mask over her face. A priest led Anna in the Lord's Prayer. She reached the line, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver. But the sentence was cut short as an electric current surged through her body. She was gone. Anna Hahn was the first of three women executed by electric chair in Ohio. The last time was in 1954. No woman has been executed by any method in Ohio since then, though of the state's 118 current death row inmates, just one is female. To research this story, I read a slew of old newspapers, and man, did this case get coverage back in the day. I also read the Anna Hahn section of Tori Telfer's Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. I owe special thanks to Jeff Cease, author of several books, including Cincinnati, an illustrated timeline. Cease, in turn, cited information he'd gleaned from another book titled The Goodbye Door, the incredible true story of America's first female serial killer to die in the chair. That one was written by Diana Franklin.
of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.